What is up, guys? We are here with book club numero dos, or du, or two, if you speak English. <laughs> um, we'll be covering the second half of chapter one, uh, talking about fish density, fish species, and hatch activity, and how this pertains to creating a plan and approach towards fly fishing for trout. So let's first of all get into it. Fish density starts actually on page 24. It goes through the rest of chapter one. And so with fish density, the biggest takeaway I had was that when the fish density is high, fish will sometimes hold in less than ideal water. And you know, that makes sense. When you have a more highly dense fishery stream, you know, especially a smaller stream, I fished a really small stream just a couple of days ago that had a very high density of trout. And so I would often find these fish, you know, of course I'd still find them in the best water, the deepest water, the deep dark holes that look like there's a monster waiting there. But I'd also catch them in, you know, some like six inch troughs. You know, the water was extremely low. That's how it is here in the fall right now. I would find some of these fish in these little shallow troughs and I would just have to make a cast as fish and dry dropper. And I would fish every little trough, every little holding spot and you'd be surprised how shallow some of the fish were that I actually caught and that's because how dense the population was you know when those fish those bigger fish take up the best lies uh, and then everyone else gets what's left so you can sometimes catch especially when you're in a competition setting like I often am you want to catch every single fish you don't just want to catch the big fish you want to catch the little fish so just realizing how dense the fish population is and most of the time there's surveys done on stream you can google uh, this stream name and look for the fish density maybe find an electroshocking survey that was done and usually they post the results how many trout per mile blah 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 how many of this size per mile how many of this size per mile and, and yada 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 but a simple google search can figure that out and that's for high density fish as much water as you can fish every nook and cranny for low density fish the best possible water and when you're not restricted to a certain section of river Cover as much water as possible, you know, don't get lead feet, don't get stuck in one spot when you know there's not that many fish in the river. Go find, go walk, go hike, go find the best water, and that's where the fish are. And oftentimes, you know, that's the best water. There won't be just one fish there, there'll be two, three, four, five, and maybe even more fish in that best water. And something that really stood out to me as a competition angler taking away from Devin, who's been super successful in the competitive scene in the United States, he says he often in competition when he has a low density river, he finds the three to five best spots within that beat and he rotates between them with different flies and techniques and he allows rest in between for each of those spots to rest before he goes through with a different technique, before he goes through with a different fly. Um, but just focusing your effort on the best water when you're in those situations where there's maybe not that many fish. And I can picture in my head some situations where I've gotten into that and gotten carried away fishing every little ounce of water and not focusing on the best lies and the best water. And so the next variable is fish species. And he points out that trout tend to hold in relatively similar locations whether they be rainbows or browns, when they are separate. When rainbows and browns are separate, they tend to hold in kind of the same water, but the kicker is when you have a stream with both browns and rainbows, 
and maybe brook trout or maybe cutthroat. Um, but cutthroat tend to act a little bit more like rainbows in, in my opinion. Uh, but and brown and brookies a little bit more like uh, browns. And I think he talks about that in the book as well. But when you have browns and rainbows combined, typically the browns will prefer the slower water and the water near the bank, the bank, the bank, the bank uh, along the structure, along the trees, uh, along the rocks. So browns, slow water, structure. And rainbows will typically occupy the faster water and they'll also occupy the center of the river. You know, the browns are towards the bank, the rainbows are towards the center. And you know, this is actually something that I had in, uh, you know, my last comp practice video was a small stream that had rainbows uh, browns and brook trout and if you watch I fish along that bank uh, along the banks on both sides and that's actually where I caught my brown trout was along the banks along those little slack seams that I was talking about that you want to target along the bank as I was walking up the river casting to the bank that's where I was catching my browns was along the bank and when I would make more of an upstream cast to the center of the river into the faster you know still kind of a pocket but a faster pocket that's when I caught the white fish and the bigger rainbows, um, you know, in that center river, in that faster water, and just kind of, you know, seeing these words from the page come to life in my past experience. Uh, it's definitely true. And some of the fastest water in the river where you do not expect there to be fish because it's just too fast, oftentimes you can find some rainbows in it, believe it or not. And even in shallow, fast water, you'd be, I'd, you'd be surprised on like Spring Creek in Pennsylvania some big rainbows I've caught in shallow fast water. It's actually pretty incredible. And then so the last variable he talks about in the chapter is hatch activity. And growing up in western New York, you know, I didn't really deal with a lot of hatch activity until I kind of got into Pennsylvania. Now that I got here out west and you know Colorado, Montana, where we get more frequent hatches and I'm on the water more when there's bugs coming off. And like yesterday there was an incredible blue winged olive hatch hatch on the Missouri tons of spinners just running down and throwing dries trout this big in the side channel just for fun how to kill some time but he points out Devin and uh, you know of course we're talking about the book tactical fly fishing he, you check riparian vegetation you know check the trees maybe there's some uh, some spent bugs some but maybe just shake the bushes see what flies out kind of try to identify to the best of your ability. I don't think it's super important to know the exact genus and species, but size and color relatively, you know, kind of gauge that. And of course, look for rises. Are the fish actually rising? Uh, but one of the key characteristics, and one thing that I really, that really just jumped out at me was aggressive rises, but no trout snout. So like yesterday, I was seeing a lot of snouts just popping, catching some, some spent bugs on the surface. A real delicate thing. When the, when the snout of a trout comes out and eats a dry. Um, but that aggressive rise where you see like big splashes, you know, trout are lazy. And so for them to be that aggressive and chase after a bug like that to where they are making huge splashes, to where they are coming out of the water, they need to be excited and they need to be convinced that the payoff is going to be worth it. Because they're expending energy to go get that fly. That fly needs to be big and chunky. So oftentimes you're looking, you know, maybe at a caddis or a larger mayfly, which is that are typically starting the hatch. And so, you know, you get the excitement, you know, you get caddis, which are typically more active dry flies that, you know, they kind of skitter along the water, 
uh, delay their eggs, they pop up and down. You get large mayflies, you know, which is a huge, huge, I mean, especially like green drakes, you're looking like an inch long, if not bigger, a huge meal for any trout. So that aggressive rise could signal, you know, some bigger and badder mayflies on the water or caddis. And so Devin also points out that with these more aggressive rises, you may not always want a dead drift. You may want a little bit of jigging motion, especially with a caddis, you know, jigging that caddis up and down, you know, kind of imitating a skittering caddis. Um, and, you know, that's actually a technique I used yesterday. I was fishing low, clear water and pretty fast water with a dry dropper because a single nymph wasn't doing so well for me. I was actually jigging that caddis up and down in the fast water, not for that activity most, but kind of to keep that fly dry and keep it from sink, sinking. So I had that indication, that strike indication um, on, the, on the water and I wasn't letting it sink. I was keeping my fly nice and dry so I could see it and see if my nymph was getting taken below it and keep it on the surface so a fish could hit it on the dry. Um, and then lastly, swinging caddis, I've had good luck doing that when fish are rising, when I'm fishing a caddis hatch, just swinging, get a little bit of motion. Half the time you catch fish by accident doing that, which is always a plus. But that's going to do it for book club number two. Hope you guys took something away from this. The next chapter, we're going to go into chapter two. We'll see when I go through it if we're going to do it the entire year, break it up into sections, but that's on gear and rigging. And I use a lot of the leaders from this book. So this is a really great chapter. I will leave the link to the description to Devin's book if you haven't got it yet and you do want to follow along. I'll leave that there for you, but we will see you next Monday, and I hope you all have a wonderful week. Get out there on the water, do some fishing, tight lines, subscribe, like the video. We'll see you next time.